Heavenly Father, I do pray uh, that the season's blessing would be upon our faith, Ohana, uh, that you would give us uh, um, a celebration of truth in our hearts that spills over to our lives. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would uh, enter the house this morning and give us what we need uh, for a week of kingdom living, uh, a week of difference-making in life. Um, we pray, Lord, that the, the miracles of the healing service uh, last week uh, would take deeper root and produce fruit in the lives of those who were touched. And we pray, Lord, for those of us who are starting out uh, with a new life uh, in this season, a new life of faith, new commitments, that they would take deep root this morning and produce fruit. We commit ourselves to your purposes in Christ's name. Everybody says, all right, Uh, we are uh, getting to the home stretch of our sermon series on the life of this guy, King uh, David, um, who uh, was in uh, Israel's uh, most famous king uh, was in the line, the family that ultimately uh, would produce uh, Jesus. And today we're going to talk about David's uh, most famous sin. Yay! Uh, let me start you with the warm up question. Go ahead, crack your neck, crack your knuckles, roll your shoulders, give a high five to somebody next to you, get the juices flowing. Because here you go, it's audience participation time, and we're going to start with a really, really easy question. You ready? What's your weakness? What, what's, your, what's your kryptonite? What is your habitual indulgence? What's your habitual indulgence? Come on, you know. You, what's that? Amazon. Yeah, well, there's a sermon. Uh, what's, what's the thing that you do that, if you just let it go, could become absolutely devastating in your life? You know? The thing that you tend to do that if you let it go... What? Oh, Vern has one. Procrastination. Stand up and show everyone your t-shirt. Mouth of a sailor, heart of a saint. Vern has many weaknesses. <laughs> Procrastination, just one of them. She was going to clear up her language, but hasn't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, I sympathize. Uh, procrastination. Uh, the thing, your habitual, the thing that you do that could become, yeah, sure. I mean, procrastination, if it grew, I mean, you could, we could procrastinate like nobody's business. We could let a lot of important things go. Anybody else got a good one? Pride? Sure, yeah. Pride. We could go off on, on pride. I, I, whenever I ask this question, and I do it periodically, because um, it's such a, it's just a good tool for discipleship and counseling, what I find is that most people actually know the answer. I don't think it's a hard question for most people to answer. You know, with just, with just a, you know, a little bit of honesty when I say, oh, what's your weakness? What's the thing that's going to destroy you? I mean, you kind of know. 
most people kind of have a response to that. I mean, we don't know for sure because we can't, you know, predict the future or anything like that. Um, but but we kind of we kind of know uh, what our habitual indulgences, our sort of go-to sin, the thing where there's just you know just a little bit of compromise. I mean, you know, it's not out of control, really, you know. But it but it could be some something like that. And then you know the follow-on question is: Are you taking care of that or not? Are you doing something to take care of that, sort of to get on top of that, to, uh, to make sure that it doesn't get out of control? Um, I always think of my yard when I think of uh, these sorts of, of questions. Uh, I live in Manoa, uh, and uh, my yard is right up against uh, the mountainside. Uh, so, you know, we're always kind of fighting back the jungle, right? Uh, and and there is this there is this vine in the corner of my yard uh, against the hill, and it's been there since we bought the house. And and here's the thing about it: it's like if I don't pay attention to it for like four weeks, it has taken over one side of my yard. Does anybody have a vine like that? And and you're yeah, it's, and you know Manoa is really wet. It's really fertile. And so uh, periodically in the mornings, I just have to go over there and I have to yank it. It's really hard for me to get, uh, get to the roots because they go to the center of the earth. <laughs> and, you know, you think you have it here and it just pops up there. It is, it is the weed, you know. And in life, we often have the weed, don't we? Like we try to get it out of our life, but, you know, we kind of squish it here, and it pops up there. Uh, this, this habit, maybe, you know, it's just an outright sin that you've been struggling with for like forevers. And if you just don't pay attention to it for a while, it can just go crazy. It, can, it threatens to take over uh, the whole area. Suddenly, you're lost in a jungle. Where today, we're talking about uh, the epic story of David and Bathsheba. What's the story about? Sex, death, sin. Yes, all of the above. That's the great thing about the story of of David and Bathsheba. Uh, If you don't know it, uh, we will read through the outline here in just a moment. It's a story about uh, illicit sex, adultery, lies, betrayal, murder, cover-up. I mean, it was a full weekend. And, And my question is, how could a guy guy like King David with, and here's the phrase, a heart after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, right? This is the guy that God chose out of nowhere and nothing to be king of Israel, anointed him and said, this is a heart I just love. This, this is a heart that I can build on. This is a heart I can trust. And he ends up kind of becoming a, a murderer, what does a guy with a heart after God's own heart have to do to become an adulterer, a liar, a murderer? And, and then also, importantly, what does a guy uh, with a heart after go, God's own heart do about it once he realizes that he's made uh, such a mistake? That's what today's story is about. Uh, it's a long story. Um, the story of David and Bathsheba takes up two full chapters in, uh, in 2 Samuel. It's no joke. Um, I've excerpted it uh, wildly. Uh, you'll uh, 
can read along in some part in the back of your program. The story picks up at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, those of you who have been following along in the sermon series know that David has become king. Finally, after years of travail and living in the wilderness and running for his life and being the Robin Hood of Israel and fighting all of Israel's enemies kind of from the periphery, he is made king and now he's fighting off Israel's enemies from the throne. He's established his capital. Um, things have settled down a little bit, uh, but, uh, but still, he's got battles to fight. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And that's how it was back in the day. It was in the springtime uh, when tribes, nations fought with each other. Uh, they uh, had a, a very seasonal approach uh, to the year. There was a time for planting. There was a time for harvest. Uh, there was a time when the wither, weather was inclement. You couldn't do much. And then there was a time to go off and fight your battles. Uh, and it was, in, it was in the springtime in this area of the world. So the season for war is upon them. When kings go off to war, it says, but this king decides not to go off to war. Instead, he sends his general out to do it. But David remained in Jerusalem. Uh, and that's the prelude. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. He's restless. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Pause. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's most famous soldiers. He is, in fact, considered to be one of David's mighty men. He's a guy that has fought beside David for years at this point. You know, he's in David's posse. He's Uriah the Hittite, which means that he's not a Jew. Ethnically, he's not part of David's kingdom, but he's one of those, those uh, you know, down-and-outers that joined David when he was living in the caves in the wilderness, one of the criminals that sort of rallied to him. And he has, in fact, become one of David's heroes, a hero of the nation of Israel, uh, Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. That's why she was bathing, presumably in some visible place. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant, busted. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. David is a very clever guy, and he has come up with a solution. And Joab sent him David, and uh, sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, "Go down to your house and wash your feet," which meant, "Hey, weekend furlough. Go go enjoy your wife." You see what David's concocting here? It's like, "Whoops, I got your wife pregnant." You get to come home for the weekend. I'm going to send you to your wife. You're going to sleep with her, and nobody's going to know it's my kid. They're going to assume that it's your kid. Everybody, ah, 
Okay, that's the plan. I just want to make sure that you are following. But Uriah slept at the entrance to, uh, excuse me, so Uriah left the palace and a gift was, from the king was sent after him. David's really laying it on thick. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to the house. He sort of slept in the gatehouse. He slept in the barn uh, with the servants. Uriah was a man of honor. He's like, look, my homies are out fighting uh, the war right now. Uh, who am I to go take a weekend with my wife kicking back and drinking beer uh, in the den? I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to stay here until I go back to the front. You see the sort of guy that Uriah is. Skipping down a little bit, David finds out that Uriah did not go sleep with his wife and his plan has been foiled. So this is what he does. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And that is, in fact, what happens. Uriah goes back to the front carrying this letter. Uh, He gives the letter to Joab. Joab opens it, reads instructions to kill the bearer of the letter, essentially to kill Uriah. Everybody just go, I mean, how dastardly is that? You have the guy carry his own death notice. Uh, They charge the city. Uriah, being the brave, courageous soldier that he is, rushes to the front. He's fighting against the wall. And then on a secret signal, everybody else withdraws and just leaves him there in the thick of the battle. And Uriah gets struck down. Nastiness. Nastiness. And then uh, when uh, Joab sends news that Uriah has been killed, uh, David takes Bathsheba into his own household. Uh, David essentially marries her, and boom, and the crime is, is covered up. The crime is covered up. So we'll just stop there. Uh, again, to review, we'll stop there for the time being. Uh, so it's the season when kings go to war, but David is taking a break this time around. He's taking a break. He, he's effectively on vacation. He, he's, he's letting down his guard a little bit. Is what, is what he's doing. He's decompressing. And, and I get it. It's because David has been on guard his whole life, pretty much since the moment uh, that Samuel anointed him to be king over Israel. His life has just been nonstop drama and struggle, right? First, he has to kill a giant, and then he kind of becomes a hero slash criminal at the same time because Saul immediately starts trying to kill him out of jealousy. And David spends most of his adult life uh, running, from, running from the law, running from the king's soldiers, living in caves. I mean, he's had an incredibly tough go of it, and he has been fighting and fighting and fighting. Not like, you know, just emotionally fighting, although there was a good deal of that. He had lost his first wife, and, and you know, his, the Philistines were trying to kill him. He had to humiliate himself there. You guys have been following most of the stories. I mean, he deserves a break, does he not? I mean, deserves it. He deserves, he deserves a little time off, you know, a little sabbatical. Uh, and this is the season when kings go off to war, and David's like, yeah, I just, I'm not going to do it this time. I'm going to decompress. And, and, 
and he's, he's just chilling at the palace, but he's restless. You can tell that he's restless because it's the middle of the night, and he's up on the roof walking around, and he spies this hot chick bathing over in, on her place, uh, probably out on her, her lanai, her patio, or her roof out in the open, which is, which is interesting um, because that's not normally where a woman would bathe. Uh, and so some people speculate that uh, Bathsheba was fishing here. Uh, we don't know for sure exactly what was going on. It's a purification bath. Uh, she has just finished her, her menstrual cycle, so, you know, she had to bathe. Um, anyway, whatever, whatever the true story is, uh, David wants her and, uh, and takes her with the complicity of some of his household servants. And he does this even though... He knows that she's somebody else's wife. He knows that she's the wife of one of his most trusted warriors and allies. He does this even though he knows adultery according to God's law, the law that ostensibly he's leading his nation in following. Adultery carries the penalty of death for anyone caught in it. And even though the dude's got other wives at this point, um, he has... uh, you know about, about Michael. Um, we've skipped over uh, some of the stories of David collecting other wives. We actually don't know how many wives he had, um, which should tell you something. Uh, in addition to his wives, there are at least six, seven, eight of them. Um, he has a harem. He has concubines. They're often referred to in Scripture. So the, so the dude, the dude's living the high roller life in that respect. You know, he's got no shortage and he is the king. Uh, you know, and maybe, maybe she was offering in a way, we don't really know, but, but please, I mean, an entirely dastardly act. David has always been clever and he launches this plan. He brings Uriah home to sort of cover up his, his misdeed, but Uriah defeats it by following a code of honor, probably the code of honor that David taught him which is a bitter irony, you know. Uh, And in an unspeakable act of murder and treachery, David, as Uriah, delivered his own death warrant, super intense betrayal. Uriah fights valiantly near the wall of the city of Rabbah, which was this city fortified with giant stone walls. And and Joab uh, draws support away from him. David uses Uriah's own honor to kill him, essentially. And then David takes Bathsheba in, and I'm sure people said at that point, oh, David is so noble to accept responsibility to the wife for the wife of his fallen comrade. You know, the public relations win uh, for David. Just, ah. Okay, so here's my question. Uh, This is the guy that put his life on the line against a giant for the sake of God's honor. You remember that story? He didn't have to do it, you know, but he's like, no, giants don't get to cuss out God in front of the armies of Israel. I'm going to go take care of this. David used to have that kind of honor, and this is the guy that wouldn't accept Saul's daughter in marriage until he performed a feat worthy enough to have her, and he went out and slew 200 Philistines. You remember that story? He used to be that kind of honorable. 
and this is the guy that wouldn't harm Saul, even though Saul was completely terrorizing the nation and trying to murder him specifically, trying to murder David. But when David got the opportunity to kill Saul, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't raise his hand against a dishonorable man. But in this story, he's raising his hand against an incredibly honorable man. What the heck is going on here? This is the guy whose heart delighted God so much that God made him king. What happened? What happened? What happened to David that the sight of one naked chick would just fry his circuits? Know, turn him into a sex-crazed murderer. What the heck? Everybody turn to the person next to you and say, what the heck? Because that's, that's, that's the great mystery uh, of the story here. And, you know, and I, whenever I read this story, um, you know, it's a famous story. Read it periodically. It's a story that appears in different places in Scripture. There's at least one psalm written about it as well. We'll read an excerpt from that in a second. Whenever, whenever I I read it, I, I get a little bit angry, you know, because I, 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 feel, I feel the betrayal, you know. It's like God is, has given David everything. And have you, ever, have you ever had a season of life where you feel that God has taken away everything? And you're kind of holding on by your fingernails, and maybe temptations come against you, but you continue to hold on, and then you're having a season like that, and you read this story, David, who has received everything from God and is now king of Israel, who finally at this point in his life had it made and he lets go, you know, and murders somebody, you know, this guy whom God honored. I I feel the betrayal. The betrayal here for everyone who's ever tried to be faithful in tough circumstances. Um, Ouch. So, So what did we miss? You know, what's going on here? And, and, uh, and I think it has to do with David's indulgence, his habitual indulgence, his weed, uh, if you will. How many wives did David have? We don't know. We don't know. There was, there was uh, Michael, whom you know about, then Ahinoam, uh, which was, uh, who was probably his, his second wife. We don't read a lot about her, but she was the mother of uh, David's eldest son, uh, who's going to figure into the story shortly, a son that would eventually rebel against David. There's Abigail, a wife that David picked up uh, after having an argument with her husband. Uh, her husband dies, and David takes responsibility for Abigail. Then Maka, then Haggith, then Abital, then Egla. Egla, she must have been a looker with a name like Egla. Then Bathsheba, those are the ones that we know about for sure. And then came the unnumbered concubines, not, not wives, just, just sort of sex partners in residence, women with whom David need not have had any relationship, but he had a bunch of children with them as well. I'm not sure what a guy with seven wives needs with a harem, uh, but, but David uh, saw, saw fit to have one. As for the record, uh, the Bible frowns on polygamy, um, kind of frowns on this multiple wives thing. Uh, Adam only had Eve, right? Uh, And it wasn't until Genesis 4 that we read about a man uh, 
who, who thought to take two wives. He was sort of a, a sexual innovator. Uh, his name was Lamech, and Genesis 4 kind of makes a, a big deal about that. His excuse was, hey, it's not like I've killed anybody, uh, which is an excuse that guys have been using when they want to seduce women ever since then. Hey, it's no big deal. Um, and uh, that's how uh, polygamy got into uh, the human race, evidently. It was a big enough deal that people thought to record it. But the Hebrews were not polygamous by tradition. It really wasn't part of their heritage. Abraham had one wife, Sarah, and when Sarah couldn't have children and wanted to, to get Abraham children uh, by another means, she chose a foreign maid. It had to be a foreign woman because good Hebrews didn't play polygamy. You know, only foreigners would. Um, you know, people were making excuses for it. Uh, Moses only had the one wife. It seems that Hebrews picked up polygamy from the Canaanite tribes in the Promised Land, uh, from, from the people around them who were very sexually licentious. And, uh, you know, over the years, the Hebrews picked that up. And I think what that meant is that women declined in status because they became collectibles. And uh, you see that happening in a lot of polygamist uh, cultures. Uh, Paul would eventually tell Timothy in the New Testament that a pastor should be beyond reproach, the husband of but one wife, just to sort of clear things up. Uh, but, but God doesn't uh, necessarily fight polygamy outright at this time in Israel's history. It's not ideal, but, but God was, was working with, with people. Uh, and so the law said only this, that if you had sex with a woman, if a man had a sex with a woman, the man had to take responsibility for caring for that woman for the rest of her life. That was the standard. So what the Bible teaches is that there's no such thing as premarital sex. If you have sex with someone, you are married to that person. Sex is always marital. And this is why sleeping around is such a problem, is because you're, you're actually mocking marriage and, you know, the responsibility that comes with it. That's actually the biblical perspective on, on, on premarital uh, sex. You're supposed to take responsibility. Uh, and on that basis, adultery was forbidden because if you sleep with someone, you know, she's your wife in God's eyes. And if she's already someone else's wife, well, you've got a big problem, don't you? And uh, in this day and age, it was men, you know, sleeping with women. But, of course, the opposite is true as well. If a woman sleeps with someone who's already uh, someone else's husband, well, you've got a similar problem. Clearly, David has a problem uh, in this area. Uh, he has a, a, an indulgent streak when it comes with women. He's been collecting women. He has a lot of sex partners in his life. And, and when you gear your life for indulgence, well, you become vulnerable to temptation. Once indulgence gets going, it tends to take over. And I think that's exactly what happened here with David. It was his weakness. It was the, the area of his life where he didn't really apply the same sort of discipline he applied to other areas of, of his life. Uh, but notice that there's a setup here. Uh, when the kings go to war, David was taking a break. He's just whipped the Syrians in the story. This is this big battle and, and secured 
uh, Israel against a major enemy, but he's sitting this one out. Um, just being on vacation makes you more vulnerable to darkness, I think. Galatians 5 says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, if you're moving in the Spirit, that's the best way to avoid temptations of the flesh. If you've got a really, really healthy lawn, that's the best way to control weeds, right? When you're fighting a battle, you're not likely to lose discipline. But when you're taking a break, that's exactly when you're likely to lose discipline, you know? When you're just sort of relaxing uh, into the flesh, that's exactly when you get into trouble. I don't worry about people's moral behavior when they go on missions trips. I worry a great deal about people's moral behavior when they leave the island for the whole summer on vacation. You know, it's like, oh, that's trouble. When, when you live a period of life in which you don't have intense focus, that's often trouble. It's often trouble for you. And it was uh, for David. Notice, maybe predictably, on this vacation, David is restless. He's up at night. I think that David has become dissatisfied with his situation, it seems. Like, eh, I'm just, uh, I had enough of being a warrior. Uh, but he doesn't really know what else his life is about. So he's just up pacing at night. He's just trying to find his way. He's got some sort of inner turmoil. I'm not sure how it happened, but I, I do think it happens to a lot of people who focus on the state of their life rather than the purpose of their life, if that makes sense. You know, David has received everything he's ever fought for. You know, he's king. His nation is relatively secure. He's He's wealthy, he's got, you know, a huge harem, he's building his family, he's the envy of, of everyone, he has attained the kingship, but he has evidently lost sight of the purpose of the kingship, which was to serve and protect and minister, right? He's in the state of king, but he's not doing the mission of a king. And, and, and that's a temptation that I think all of us share. Very few of us will actually become kings or queens. Um, but, you know, we, we dream about a state of life. We want our life to be like this instead of we want our life to be for this. See the difference? And sometimes the state that we pursue is a certain job or a certain relational status, you know, um, or a certain financial state. You know, we, we dream about these things. Uh, and all of that, you know, those things aren't bad, but what they're not is purpose. They're not, as, they're not purpose. And a life where you're not focused on purpose is a life where you're, you're going to fall prey to temptation uh, much more easily. Um, I, uh, I think of this couple that Sonia and I knew uh, early in our marriage um, we met them uh, when we were living in Chicago, and I was going to grad school. And they were they're just, they're just gorgeous couple. Both of them were just gorgeous people. Uh, he was in medical school, and, um, and uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't really believers, but we were getting to know them, talking about significant things. And, and, and I learned very quickly that they kind of had this obsession. He was going to 
come to Chicago. He was going to uh, become a doctor, and then they were going to move back to their hometown where he was going to open a practice, and they had a plot of land that they uh, made a deposit on, and somebody was waiting until they could pay. They, they had their life figured out perfectly. And I remember thinking at the time that I was really bothered by that for some reason together, you know, what was going on. Uh, in retrospect, I would say, well, I mean, they were pursuing a state, right? They were pursuing a picture of life. Uh, they had an idea about how things should be. But there was no purpose in their life. And what, what are you doing that for? I remember I asked them one afternoon. What are you doing that for? Well, we've always dreamed about it. That's really not a reason. That's just a description, you know. Uh, uh, four years after that, um, they, were, they were divorced. Um, he... Uh, ended up being a kind of a serial adulterer, um, you know, eerily similar story, good-looking, talented uh, guy. Um, life is mission. If you forget that, you will become dissatisfied. All these studies about how retirees die early, have you read those? You kind of lose your purpose kind of fall off the edge. Well, Christians start dying when they stop fighting, and David had stopped fighting, so his faith started dying. David became dissatisfied, and so he turns to his standby indulgence uh, women. I'll pick up the story in the next chapter, Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, beginning from verse 1. There are excerpts from Second Samuel um, in your program beginning at verse 8. So this is what happens uh, after David has gotten away with it. Things have settled down. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Some of us have dogs like that. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Mm. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Well, you see it coming, don't you? David, Nathan is setting David up. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man! Dun, dun, dun. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. What that probably means is that David inherited Saul's harem. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 
This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Your family's going to fall apart, David. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight. All Israel, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. David gets busted by, by uh, the prophet here. Um, after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he wouldn't eat any food. And on the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, While the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. And we'll stop there for a second, pick it up uh, in a moment. So Nathan comes along and tells David a story. And this this little story about a rich man stealing uh, a man's pet and serving it for dinner. Uh, It's the ultimate gotcha moment. And David has effectively judged himself when he judges this guy. Uh, and, and, you know, it gets totally busted. Uh, Nathan says, yep, that's you, and there will be consequences from your own household. There will be rebellion and destruction, and that's a story that we're going to study next week. But suffice it to say that David's family falls apart in, in the most consequential and violent fashion. David repents before the Lord, you know, Um, He says, yeah, I have sinned against the Lord. And he goes into fasting and humiliation, rituals of humiliation, in order to save the life of of the child that Bathsheba had had born to him. And and his repentance was not as casual as as these verses uh, might suggest. Um, You know, for one thing, he doesn't kill Nathan, uh, which is good. He killed Uriah. You know, Nathan only knows because God told him, and you could see David saying, well, I'm going to lop off this guy's head, and that will take care of this threat. Um, that's, that would have been the easiest thing for him to do, but at least David has the decency uh, to, to know that he needs to repent uh, before the Lord here. Uh, and the other thing David does is that he repents publicly. We don't know all of the details, but we do know that he writes a psalm about this, this moment in his life, Psalm 51. Uh, David writes a psalm. He give, gives it to uh, the, uh, the worship leaders uh, of, of Israel and has them sing it publicly. And uh, this was the title of the psalm, Psalm 51. For the director of music, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. How would you like to see that title uh, on, the, on the overhead? So David is making very plain um, what he has done. He's having the national choir sing about it uh, in front of everyone. Uh, and and uh, many songs have been written based on that song. Um, Lord, renew a right spirit within me is perhaps its most famous line. So David does what he can to kind of uh, repent. He probably should have been killed, right, because he's broken laws of both adultery and murder. Uh, but, you know, he gets away with that. Um, I don't know that he would have argued uh, had somebody said that he should forfeit his life. Um, there will be big consequences, he says. 
uh, Nathan says to David. So David is just embracing for them. Uh, the first consequence is that the child, the child dies. Uh, and this is judgment against David. I know it seems unjust for God to kill the kid because the kid didn't do anything wrong. I'm pretty sure that kid is fine in eternity. You know, I'm pretty sure God received the child uh, and the child is going on to his next life with great, uh, with great interest and, and joy. You know, the baby was innocent and he was received as innocent into eternity. But David has to go through all of that. Uh, picking up the story in, in 19 and, and 20. <clears throat> David, David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He's dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now that's an interesting response to your kid dying. It's like, well, I'm going to stop praying and fasting then. I'm going to get dressed, cleaned up, and I'm going to go dance before the Lord. And then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And his attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, I will see him in the next life, but I can't see him here. Um, and uh, the story uh, goes on. This is a picture of how a man after God's own heart recovers from failure. And I think this may be the most interesting part of the story. There is no question that David has been dastardly uh, to the extreme. And he's suffering the consequences of that. And he knows that he's going to suffer uh, the consequence of that. You read his reaction, maybe like his servants, you think, well, where's the remorse, dude? You just killed a guy. Where's the remorse? You know? And here's how I think David reads it. David has just gone through a bad season of not trusting God very well. And so his number one priority is to start trusting God again as soon and as strongly as possible. He has to get back to trusting God. Always the first thing that we have to trust about God is that he loves us and forgives us and is for us. That's always the first thing anybody has to trust about God. And so even though David has made a complete disaster of his life, of his kingship, his first priority is to embrace the love of God. And he expresses that as David often expressed it. He expressed it through worship. He's a very musical guy. He writes Psalm 51, which is a psalm of public humiliation and repentance. And then he just spends time before the Ark of the Covenant dancing before the Lord and worshiping God. You know, grieve if you need to grieve. Repent if you need to repent, but don't ever waste any time on shame. Grieve if you need to grieve. Repent if you need to repent, but don't ever waste any time on shame. Because shame doesn't get you right with God. Shame is a barrier between you and God. 
forgiveness is always easy in the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is always easy. God is super generous, and we need to trust that so that we can get on with the good stuff. Because the problem is we're not getting on uh, with the good stuff. So David's heart was to restore worship. And I like the way that the story ends, this great story of adultery and murder. We'll pick it up uh, right at the end. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. (laughs) Which is uh, just a, a great little section. It's like Joab, his general, is kind of poking at David. Oh, you want... You want me to take the city? That's your job. You should have been here from the beginning. From one warrior to another, that's how you got in trouble. And you made me complicit. Come on, get your butt out here and take the city, or you want me to take over? You know, this little sarcastic jab there at the end. Am I the man now? You had me do your dirty work before. You want me to do your glory right now? Huh, huh, huh. You see what's going on there? And David gets off the couch. Uh, he goes out to the battle, and, uh, and he, takes, he takes Rob at the head of his army. And I imagine him fighting right against the wall in the thick of it, like Uriah did. Except David, I hope, was rejoicing in the support of his friends, his, his comrades in arms, uh, while he was uh, doing it. In other words, David got back to work fighting the enemies of God and protecting uh, the people of God. It's like Joab was saying, all right, all right, right. I I heard them singing Psalm 51. That was lovely. I know that you've gone through repentance and, and fasting and humiliation and all of that. I know that you're trying to make things as right as you can make them, but are you back? Are you, are you back pursuing your purpose? Are you sane again? That's what Joab is doing. Uh, so, David musters the entire army, and he takes the city. Are you back? That's the thing I always ask people uh, who come to me after seasons of sin or failure or checking out of life. Sometimes we just check out of life for a while, and uh, then we say, oh, something's wrong. I'm going to go talk to the pastor. And, uh, and one of the things I, I say at the beginning of all of those interactions is, well, are you back? I mean, are you ready to get to work? If you're ready to get to work, then we can handle all the heart stuff. Then we can handle everything that was wrong in your spirit. But first, you need to get back to work. You need to jump into the fray. Never stop ministering. Never. No matter how evil you are, right? I mean, get the evil out. But if you lose your purpose... Uh, you lose your power. You lose your power to fight off the temptation and the indulgences. Are you back? Maybe, maybe this morning some of you are in that place where for whatever reason your life has just stalled out. Maybe because you've gotten engaged in sin and you're still coming here because you know that this is life, but over here in, 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 in your weekly life, you know, you're just messed up and you know it. You know it. Um, what's happened to you is that you've stopped ministering. 
the level of your kingdom activity has gone down and you're just kind of treading water in life. And maybe that's you this morning. You're in a treading water sort of place. You're just kind of taking in your status. You're okay. You're coping. But eventually that indulgence is going to wipe you out. Eventually it will kill your heart. It will destroy you or worse, make you a destroyer. That's how it works. God said to Cain, you must master sin or it will master you, right before Cain murdered his brother. And sin mastered Cain. Don't mess with the weed. Don't mess with it. It will take over your whole yard. And that's you. You know it. My first question to you is, do you want to come back? Right? Do you want to get back into battle? Because that's going to be the way out for you. You're going to have to engage your purpose. You're going to have to remember who you are and what you're for. What you're for. And if you want to come talk to me about your sin, that's what I'm going to talk to you about. So, well, what are you for? What are you not attending to? Okay, now that we know that, let's attend to all the crap that you've let in, that you've let this indulgence take over your life. Now, speaking about indulgence, what is your habitual indulgence? What is your weakness? I asked you at the beginning, and what I find is that almost everybody knows the answer to that. You can either speak it out loud now, or you can admit it later after it takes over, which is what happened to David. When you speak it out loud now, that's called confession. That's called confession. And it's been a Christian practice for over 2,000 years. You sort of admit your weakness. You admit your secret indulgences. You sort of get them out in the open so that you can't do anything in secret. Uh, And it's really, really helpful. What's, What's your weed? It's a double entendre there. Maybe your weed is weed. Legal or not, never made anybody smarter. Uh, Whatever your weed is, um, you know, get rid of it uh, before it finds the moment, you know, to destroy you or to make you uh, destructive. Maybe it's money. Uh, Maybe it's sex. Uh, Maybe it's power or status. Uh, Maybe it's something, you know, relatively minor. Maybe it's food. You don't think food can take over your life, you know? You don't think food can become something that eventually just makes you feel really, really ashamed? Takes you right out of the game? And in this culture, that's actually huge. Huge. It can be anything, right? Something that you just indulge in and and gets gets out of control, you know? Whatever it is. Could be what you're listening to. Could be what you're looking at could be who you're engaging with. What's your weed? So two things. Uh, Weeds pop up a lot in life, so you have to deal with them routinely. You need a routine for keeping the weeds down. If you've ever tried to keep care of a yard in Manoa, you know that this is true. You may need help doing it. Um, You need a routine for talking about stuff uh, that at which you're weak. Um, Get plugged into an ohana group. Have the conversation every once in a while. In your ohana group this week, uh, have somebody ask you, uh, what's your indulgence? And tell them. And uh, that will be the start of that. 
The more you care for good plants, the fewer weeds you get. And what you need to do is live a lifestyle of fertilizing disciplines. I'm stretching the metaphor now, but bear with me. Things like prayer and study of Scripture and honest small group fellowship and confession. All of those things provide cover so that weeds don't pop up. And you need to get into ministry in some fashion. You need to to serve you need to serve with other people. You know, volunteer for something at the Christmas concert if you have nothing else, you know, in, in the pipeline. Get it started because that actually ends up protecting your heart over time. It is amazing how really, really good people can end up in super destructive situations. It's amazing. Don't be st- Stupid. I think you're probably quite brave. I think God designed you for great things. I think the word of the Lord has anointed you for tremendous fruitfulness uh, in the world. And if you don't believe that, it's only because, you know, you've believed the lies of Satan and the work of chaos and you've started to drift. Lots of people around here that can help you with that. Let's pray. We all know, Lord, uh, that none of us are are perfect, uh, and many of us have tried, uh, nonetheless, to be very, very good. Um, uh, A helpful spirit of conviction this morning a conviction about the little weeds that can grow into these noxious vines that entangle our lives. Uh, speak to us now about things that we should not let go. Speak, Lord. Now, if the Lord is speaking to you about it, uh, the word will come with a sense of conviction and not a sense of guilt or condemnation. They're different things. Uh, Conviction leads to repentance and condemnation leads to hiding. Uh, You can, if you want to, try to repent on your own and get these little things cleared up. You can. Um, I suggest, uh, though, that you chat with somebody at your Ohana group about it. Because the reason the weed is in your life is that you weren't very good about taking care of it on your own in the first place. So I'll give you a moment between you and the Lord to think about uh, what form uh, your, uh, your self-care needs to take.
we pray, Lord, as David prayed in Psalm 51, uh, that you would um, restore unto us um, the wealth of our salvation, that you would renew our right spirit within us, that even before we go too far astray, that you would get us uh, back on the path that leads to purpose, life, and power. Uh, We are compromised people, Lord, but I pray uh, for healing and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.